as we move into chapter 10, it is important to understand that chapter 10, 11, and 12 are one unit. Uh, it is one prophetic vision, uh, the vision that will deal with things in the immediate future. We will see that at the opening of chapter 11, things that will happen throughout the Greek period or the Greek empire, the rest of chapter 11, and then events of the end times like the resurrection of the just and the unjust that's spoken of in chapter 12 and verse 2. This chapter opens with the narrator once again setting the scene for us. We're in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, this may be cool to you. It's kind of cool to me. There's some parallel that exists in these visions. First vision was the first year of Belshazzar. Second vision was the third year of Belshazzar. Third vision was the first year of Cyrus. This vision, the last, is the third year of Cyrus. There's a parallelism between the years and the timing of these events for Daniel to see these things. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us greater understanding, not for the sake of our own knowledge and our own ego, but that we may know you more. And we may trust you more, and we may rejoice in you all the more. Help us, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter the text, we find a greatly weakened Daniel who is standing on the bank of the Tigris River. This is in the Babylon region. And so, why is he weak? He has been mourning, he has been fasting for three weeks. The text says that there were no delicacies that he was involved in, no meats that he was eating, uh, no wine, no anointing oil. But why is he mourning? Why is he fasting? What has driven him to this? It's possible that he is still perplexed from the 70-week prophecy that he received uh, two years earlier, even though Gabriel delivered that message uh, so long ago. I'm sure Daniel is still troubled by the things he has heard and seen and trying to figure them out. I know I am, so I can imagine he was as well. But Probably the greater possibility for his mourning and his frustration in life is that Daniel has heard recent reports of the hostility that the returned exiles are facing in Jerusalem. You see, we're at this position now where uh, Ezra and others have left Babylon and they have now traveled to Jerusalem and they are beginning to rebuild things. They're beginning to restructure things. But as we know from the book of Ezra and later the book of Nehemiah, they face some opposition. They face difficulty. And it's quite possible that this is the news that Daniel hears. Here's what Ezra chapter 4 says. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all of the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia. This would no doubt have discouraged Daniel. He had endured much to this point to try to gain understanding of what would happen at the end of the 70 years and that people would go back and Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And this is his hope. This is his desire. And now it's being frustrated once again by people there in the land. Well, in the end, we cannot be completely certain why Daniel is mourning, but I do want to note how he's mourning. Because there's a lesson here for me. There's a lesson here for all of us as we face our own times and seasons of mourning. His mourning involves a three-week fast. 
In that fast is included no rich food, that is, uh, no meat, no wine. It would seem he returned to something simple, probably like he was eating in chapter 1 when they first arrived in Babylon, just uh, some vegetables and some things along those lines. Also, he is avoiding oils, and the oils would have been used as, as lotions uh, that would help them to withstand the blazing sun that would be encountered there in the desert. And so to fast from these things, to fast from anything, is deprive one, to deprive oneself in order to give greater attention to God, in order to focus greater attention on God. In verse 5, the vision begins. Look, look at the description and consider who it might be. He sees a man who is clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold and euphaz around his waist. His body is like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning and his eyes flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his word is like the sound of a multitude. It's not just one person, it's a lot of people. Well, it sure sounds like a description that John gives in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus. It sounds like a description that Ezekiel gives in chapter 1 of Ezekiel of God himself. We, we would look at this and consider maybe this is a theophany, a, a manifestation of God in some way. And as cool as that would be for us, as cool as it would have been for Daniel to have another experience like this, I'm not convinced that's what it is or that's, that's who it is. I'll explain my reasoning in a moment. But whatever the identity of this formidable man that Daniel is now seeing, um, the others around him cannot see it, it says in the text, or cannot see him, but, but they somehow sense something supernatural is happening around them, and so they run away. Daniel is left now alone with the vision that he is experiencing. And as his brain is trying to process yet another vision, his appearance changes. He loses strength. This is no uh, Tinkerbell figure. This is a mighty warrior. He is terrified to his core. And then as Daniel hears the sound of his words, which are the sound of that multitude, Daniel collapses face first on the ground. He's now in his mid-80s. Think about that. His mid-80s, he's been fasting for three weeks. He's physically, uh, psychologically, emotionally depleted. His body does what it is designed to do, emergency shutdown mode, and he just passes out. Everything he has is gone. That I recall, I only passed out one time in my life. There may have been other times that I just wasn't aware. Uh, but, but mine was in a bus, a very crowded bus in China. And uh, I remember uh, I was just having all sorts of issues. I'd eaten weird things. And, and I remember looking over at Faith and saying, I think I'm about to pass out. You know, the black tunnel, it's just closing in around you. There was a nurse who was in our, with our group behind, and she grabbed my head. The next thing I knew, I woke up laying in the lap, looking up at a giant Texan named Steve Bender, uh, and I'm just laying there, what in the world, where am I trying to figure those things out? This, this is Daniel's experience. In verse 10, Daniel comes to. He regains consciousness as somebody touches him, helps him to his hands and his knees, and Daniel's still trembling. Here's what the man says. 
We've heard this before. O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. Davis aptly notes in his commentary that uh, most of this chapter, really I would say all of this chapter, chapter 10, describes the agonizing process of getting Daniel able to stand on his feet again. (laughs) The whole chapter is about strengthening him for the vision that he is about to receive. Daniel in this chapter is a mess. And as I was thinking about that, as Heather was reading, just this new thought came to my mind. That's us a lot of the time, isn't it? We're just messes. And God in his grace comes to us and says, oh, you who are greatly loved. And in his grace, he strengthens us for the tasks that lie ahead. Daniel, still trembling, does eventually make it to his feet. And in verse 12, the man continues. Read along with me again. He says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God. So 21 days ago, your words had been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia, and he came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Again, the latter part of what the, the angel says is, I'm here to give you more understanding. Remember, these visions are layering on. And with each vision, Daniel understands a little bit more about the plans that God has for his people. But what is this angel describing in these verses? Because this is weird. He assures Daniel his humility was noted from day one. You prayed your prayer, and I was dispatched, and I was sent to you. So why did it take him 20 days beyond that to get to Daniel? He says he was opposed. He says somebody held him up, and he uses the name the Prince of Persia held me up, and I was only able to escape when some other person named Michael came and helped me. What is happening in this text? It should be clear to us that the man that, that uh, Daniel is speaking to is in fact an angel. It's a messenger. It could be Gabriel. Gabriel has come to him before, but I, I don't think it's Gabriel because Gabriel's already been mentioned by name, so why not just mention him again? Hey, it's Gabriel who came to deliver the message. But what about the opposition of the prince of Persia. Did Cyrus, who is the prince of Persia, did Cyrus somehow stop this angelic being from getting to Daniel? From the context, we have to understand that the prince of Persia is not a reference to Cyrus, but is a reference to another spiritual being. Something otherworldly. And if that spiritual being is opposing God and and opposing the messengers of God, then we must be referring to a demon, a fallen angel, one of Satan's minions. See, here in Daniel chapter 10, the veil between our world and the spiritual world is opened up for us and Daniel to catch a glimpse of what we would rightly call spiritual warfare. Things that are happening around us that we have no understanding of. 
It's in fact the, the, the fact that this man, this messenger, is able to be disposed or deposed for 20 days that leads me to believe it's, it's not Jesus. If it were Jesus, nobody would be able to depose him but one of the servants of Jesus. It could be that the first figure, and I, and I may be giving you more details than you care to know, but the first figure that Daniel sees before he passes out is a different figure than the one who wakes him up. And so maybe the first figure was Jesus, but then he passes out and he wakes up when another angel's shaking him and getting him up, but that would seem unlikely as well. And so for 21 days, this angel has been battling it out with the demonic prince of Persia. How angels battle isn't described. But evidently Michael, one of the chief princes, is how he's described here, which is where some get the term archangel. Uh, this idea of a chief arrives and is able to help this messenger escape and get to Daniel. Michael will again be mentioned in Jude chapter 1 and verse 9. Michael is mentioned in Revelation chapter 12. He is a leader of the armies of the angels who fight the great dragon in Revelation. He is one in Jude, as weird as this seems, who fights the demonic forces for the body of Moses. We have no context for that, but this is what's written for us in the Scriptures. Michael's also mentioned in the apocryphal books of Enoch a few different times. It, 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 the character is, is, is fantastic and, and incredibly terrifying as we think about what's happening here. Uh, it's so terrifying that once Daniel again finds himself overwhelmed. As he's, as he's receiving this truth, it's just like, what? What are you talking about? And, and he is weakened once again to the point where he says, I can't speak until somebody touches his lips. And in verse 16, he says, oh, oh my Lord. He's finally able to speak some words. He says, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Seems he goes from passing out now to having a panic attack of sorts. He can't, he can't even put words together in this moment. Yet again, someone touches Daniel and he is miraculously strengthened. Then someone spoke these encouraging words. O man, notice the repeat, greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. The text explains that as this man is speaking to Daniel, uh, Daniel can feel the strength returning to his body. And so he asks the messenger, continue, tell me why you are here. Notice verse 20. Do you know I've come to you? But now we're returned to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against this except Michael, your prince. And as for me in the year of Darius, this is Daniel speaking, the Mede, I, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. See, the messenger says, I don't have a lot of time. I got to get back and I got to fight again with the prince of Persia. And oh, by the way, the prince of Greece is going to come and I'm going to have to fight him too. All of these things that were like, I have no idea what's happening here. But he's just adding more detail. But before he goes, he does need to share a prophecy, a vision with Daniel. This is where we'll leave off today. 
The vision comes in chapters 11 and chapter 12, and we'll consider those visions of things to come. Spoiler alert, most of it has to do with the battles that, that lead to the rise of Antiochus in the Greek Empire. But let's consider a few implications as we think about Daniel chapter 10. Daniel being strengthened for this particular engagement and this particular vision. The first thing I would want to emphasize is this, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting are meant to play a key role in the life of a Jesus follower. Jesus took time to pray and fast. The apostles took time to fast and to pray. And Daniel, once again, gives another example of fasting and prayer's place in the life of a believer. In a season of confusion for Daniel, in a season of, of grief, what does Daniel choose to do? He fasts and he prays. He knows he needs understanding. He knows he needs strength, spiritual strength. And so he fasts and he prays. So the question we have to consider is what role does prayer and fasting play in our lives? What role does it play in your life? And this is not easy for me to consider because here's, here's what happens with me. When I, when I am in a season of grief and in a season of mourning and in a season of confusion, instead of going to the Lord and, and crying out to Him, I go to the refrigerator or I go to Culver's. I'll eat my emotions. I do the opposite of what Scripture encourages me to do. Or instead of going to prayer and, and pleading with God for wisdom, I, I go to my notebook and I start jotting out, how am I going to fix this problem? What's the solution? I act in pride rather than humility. Prayer and fasting are actions of humility. They're recognizing that I don't have the solutions. I don't have the answers. I need them from the Lord. One commentator wrote this. He says, as we shall see, Daniel's prayers succeeded in drawing angels from heaven to earth. These angels formed an invincible heavenly guard around the people of the Lord. And in the mighty battle then being fought between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, Daniel succeeded in mobilizing the angels as a spiritual air force against the satanic power in the air. What we see here in Daniel is that glimpse behind the curtain to see how God uses prayer. That prayer moves spiritual beings. That God uses our prayers and answers our prayers with wars that are being fought beyond our wildest imagination. Think about with me in the book of Acts. James has been killed. Peter is in prison, awaiting his own execution. What does the church do? They gather together to pray. I have no doubt there's fasting that would be included in that. And they're there, and they're in one person's house, and they're praying. And what is happening at the prison? An angel comes and opens the doors to the prison and leads Peter out. 
spiritual warfare, things that God is doing. The end of that story is the funny thing where Peter goes to the house and he knocks on the door and the lady leaves him at the door. Peter's at the door, like doesn't even let him in. And they're, they're so amazed at what God has done. Prayer is a tool that God uses. Well, this leads to the second point that spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. While, while it may be true that spiritual warfare has uh, been somewhat sensationalized, maybe you read This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Maybe you've watched some of the movies that have come out over the years. The reality of spiritual warfare remains. The reality of the spiritual world that lies outside of our physical world remains. We depend on it every day because we are a people who are possessed by the Holy Spirit and encouraged daily by the Holy Spirit and informed daily by the Holy Spirit who is our helper and works in us and through us. Consider this verse in Colossians 2 verse 15. Here's what it says, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's not just talking about Herod or Pilate. That's talking about the authorities in the spiritual world. Jesus disarmed them. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter number 6. Verse 10, Ephesians 6 is Paul opening up and shedding a little bit of light for us regarding this battle that Daniel is experiencing and seeing in Daniel chapter 10. Ephesians 6 verse 10, Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do we do that? You put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in heavenly places. Therefore, because this is the battle, take up the whole armor of God. Prepare yourself so that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And notice now, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, pray 
And he says, pray for me because this is war. This is a battle that I'm engaged in. Pray that the message of the gospel of Jesus would be clear in its presentation and clear in its reception. Pray because we're at war. Duguid writes this. He says, we need to see that the root cause of our difficulties is not a husband or a wife that's being unreasonable. It's not a work situation that seems impossible or a rebellious child that makes life miserable. The root cause is an underlying spiritual battle in which we're engaged against powerful forces in heavenly realms. There's a battle. The phrase some people use sometimes is, is life is a picnic. I don't think we use that that much anymore. As Christians, we have to understand this. Life is a battlefield. And I don't, I don't say all of this to scare you. I, I, my, my intention in presenting you with these things, and I do not believe the intention of Scripture in presenting us with these things, is to put us in this mindset that there's a demon behind every bush. And that we need to walk around in fear and be looking, oh, spiritual battle there, spiritual battle there. Must be a demon. That, that, that God's Word gives us this slight glimpse of these things. But it is the reality of the Christian life that the New Testament writers describe, isn't it? That we're at war. Galatians chapter number 5 describes this. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are contrary one to the other. So you can't do the things that you want to do. Paul describes it well in, in Romans chapter 7 when he's describing his own experience where he says, man, the things that I want to do, man, I don't do those things. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do those things. There's a battle that rages. But we are not called to live by fear, are we? We're called to live according to love and according to wisdom. I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. It says this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's why we don't live in fear. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christ has secured victory. This is the gospel we believe and love and live our lives on and out of, that Christ has been victorious. He has conquered these evil forces and these powers as they would exist. He's even gone so far as to conquer death itself on our behalf. Christ is greater. 1 John 3 verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> and on that cross, what did he do? He crushed the head of the serpent. He rendered the demonic forces powerless in the lives of his people. He is the victor. When we pray, we who are merely weak, trembling human beings, we engage in a cosmic conflict in a way that has vast, though often unseen, repercussions. Why is that? Because we pray 
in Jesus' name. In the name of the victor. In the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a Savior. What power is ours. What peace is meant to be ours. One more point I want to make. It's one that I borrowed from Ralph Davis, one that I hadn't considered and I wouldn't have considered had he not pointed this out to me, and I believe I have this quote in the bulletin for you. He says, We seldom, if ever, think of it, of the horror and pain that God's or the Lord's servants endured in order to be the vehicles through whom His Word is passed on to us in the Scriptures. He says, We sit comfortably at our desks and at our tables and in our pews with a companionable mug of coffee. We read the prophets and we scarcely think about how Daniel was physically and emotionally wiped out or how Ezekiel plunged into a mental morass of anguish and anger. In short, of how much the Word of God cost them. If we did, we would more highly prize and tenderly reverence what we've received at their hands. The reason I don't mind spending a whole chapter focusing on Daniel's weakness is because it should remind us that God's Word, this incredible gift we have, has been given to us, but with great price. Great price to those prophets of old who, by the will of God, were moved to write these things and record these things for us. And even through the history of the church with great price for those who would dare to, to translate it into a readable language that others could read and, and experience themselves and still presently in our world at great price to those who are doing that very work and sharing it in their nations where it is a forbidden book. You see, the warfare that Daniel's experiencing, we experience to a degree, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ right now. Some of you have been to those nations. Some of you have sat with those people and you know the weight of spiritual oppression that exists. We need to pray for them. We need to thank God for the word that we have that we can so readily engage. And boy, do we need to engage it all the more while we can. Would you bow with me this morning? If anything today, I hope you're reminded that Christ is the victor. The victory is not ours. We're not the ones charging the hill. We're not the ones who are equipping ourselves. We are completely dependent upon his victory. And believe me, it is enough. His victory is enough. It is sufficient. So trust in that. In your season of, of grief, in your season of frustration, in your season of maybe what you would very much consider spiritual attack and oppression, know that Christ is the victor. He is the victor. 
How's your prayer life? How's your fasting? Are you engaging in humility with the Spirit pleading with God to do the work that He needs to do to move you through the the good days and the bad days, whatever those may be in your life? Prayer and fasting must play a key role. I want to give you just a moment to pray and then I'm going to close this out. We're going to transition into a time of communion where we can celebrate the victory of Jesus, His broken body, His shed blood for our benefit. But let me give you a moment to pray and then I'll pray for us. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. God, we thank You that the evil, the wickedness outside of us, inside of us, has been dealt with in the cross of Christ. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, it it has been buried. We have been raised to new life. And so God, help us in this new life to continue to live in dependence, praying and fasting and seeking victory in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you that we could glimpse and see some of the things we've seen, even though... Um, we may have more questions than answers as we consider Daniel chapter 10. But God, we anticipate great things, encouraging things as we move into chapters 11 and 12. And so we pray for greater insight, greater understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name.